And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Welcome to the Force 5 Podcast, where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow list nerd, Jason Kleberg. And tonight, my guest is Dan Budnick, voice on many podcasts and author of many books and many articles. I discovered him on the Made for TV Mayhem podcast, and he just seems so knowledgeable on vintage television and movies. I honestly thought that he'd pick something like top five telefilms, but he surprised me with a really unique topic, top five sheer audacity films. Dan actually sent me a 12-minute voice message giving me his explanation of what the topic meant, but to be honest, I was in based on the title alone. Do not worry, we will explain it when we get there. First up, though, uh, some housekeeping stuff. If you want more of me this week, I'll be featured on two other podcasts that you should check out. I'll be on podcasts like it's 1999, talking about Jackie Chan in Twin Dragons with Phil Iskove and Kenny Nybart, who were each guests on this show, so be sure to go check that out. And I'm also going to be on the latest episode of Film Shake, talking about the 1992 Van Damme John Woo film, Hard Target. So make sure to go listen and tell them if you liked me as a guest, so they'll hopefully invite me back. The topic of the last show that Jen Howell from Every Rom-Com picked was Top 5 Rom-Coms, and we got some listener picks to go through here. Over on the Cinematics Facebook page, Brian Dwyer and Bruce Perky both gave a shout-out to Spontaneous, which I still really need to see. It's been on my watch list forever. Friend of the show, Sean Aguilar, said Crazy Stupid Love. Sarah G. said Serendipity. David Gulick said The Wedding Singer and Knocked Up. Over on uh, Twitter, your next favorite movie pod said Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And on Instagram, Lighty Pop said Made in Manhattan. So there's some more rom-com recommendations for you. Now this show went long, so I've got just one thing I'm going to cover in my review today, but it's a big one. 30 plus years of service. Combat medals. Citations. Only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years. Yet you can't get a promotion, you won't retire. Despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. You should be at least a two-star admiral by now. Yet here you are, Captain. Why is that? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. 36 years after graduating from the Top Gun program, Pete Mitchell, callsign Maverick, is a Navy captain testing experimental aircrafts. He's called back to the Top Gun program to train a pack of 12 elite pilots, including Goose's son, for what looks to be a suicide mission. I should add that this will be spoiler-free, so I'm going to be very general about this. I think that the original Top Gun is a fantastic movie. I saw it when I was young, I just loved everything about it, the drama on the ground, the drama in the air, the plane work. I think it's one of the first movies I ever cried during when a certain character dies, because I just did not see it coming back then. The script by Jim Cash and Jack Epps really made you care about every character, which made the wins and losses actually matter. The missiles and the dogfighting were simply icing on the cake. 
I disagree with those who think that a bad sequel has a negative impact on the original film, but when you really love a film and it has a terrible sequel, it's an immense feeling of disappointment. And that was my big concern when years ago I heard that they were making a Top Gun sequel. But those fears quickly came to a rest because I knew Tom Cruise wouldn't let us down. Tom Cruise is a person who just loves movies, and he loves the audience experience while watching a movie. In short, uh, my review on this, if you like the original Top Gun, and I think most people do, you're probably going to love this film. The script by Peter Craig and regular Cruise collaborator Christopher McQuarrie gets the same things right that the original did. It makes us fall in love with an even bigger cast of characters, and the rest comes second, so that when there's smoke in the air, you care. The wrench here is the addition of Miles Teller as Rooster, Goose's son. He and Maverick have beef because Maverick pulled his papers to join the Navy, knocking precious years off of Rooster's Navy career. The other pilots are great, too. The new class standouts were Hangman, the modern-day Iceman, Phoenix, a female level-headed Top Gun grad, and Bob, a soft-spoken wingman. John Hamm steps into the hard-ass Vice Admiral role as Cyclone, another old-timer from the Top Gun program, and it wouldn't be a Top Gun film without a love interest played by the ever-charming and absolutely gorgeous Jennifer Connelly. It also wouldn't be a Top Gun film without a shirtless sport on the beach scene, and we get a nice dogfight football game that's a very fun, but definitely not as horny as the original's beach volleyball game moment. That being said, the callbacks are basically visual compared to many legacy sequels. There are only two characters that return, focusing on the future and not the past, and that's something that I really respected. Most of the film is centered on training for a mission to blow up a uranium plant. The catch is that it's basically a suicide mission. The plant is underground, buried in a crater that's surrounded by huge inclines and can only be reached by a ridiculously tough-to-navigate valley. Tom Cruise's requirement for coming back to Top Gun was that the planes could not be CG, and what a fucking difference it made in any scene where somebody was in the sky. A lot of this film takes place in the cockpits of F-18s, and you see, actually, no, you feel, you feel the actors soaring through the air. Every single time there's a plane scene, it felt thrilling, including the training sequences. When we finally get to the mission, the stakes feel real. The movie is predictable, but somehow I still felt myself gripping the arm of the theater chair, hoping that each pilot would make it out of there alive. The finale to this film is a white-knuckle ride with several moments that are just breathtaking. This is a film that will hold up in 30 years in the same thrilling way because it doesn't just feel real. The majority of what you're seeing is real. In the beginning of the movie, Admiral Cole tells Tom Cruise that pilots aren't going to be needed much longer. Drone technology is getting so advanced that eventually they'll be replaced. To this, Maverick responds, Maybe so, sir, but not today. And one might take that as Maverick just sticking one to the rear admiral, who was originally on his way to sack him, but I took that as Tom Cruise telling the audience that CGI and deepfakes might be the future of film, but not this one. I've said it before, Tom Cruise really does feel like the last true movie star, and films like Top Gun Maverick simply reaffirm that. You see him in the cockpit doing fucking spirals. You see him taking so much G-force, he's basically passing out in front of your eyes. There are a lot of Tom Cruise detractors, and I think a lot of that comes from him being a Scientologist, and I could not care less what he does in his spare time. Because honestly, if you look logically at any religion, none of them make sense, from the guy who got nailed to a cross, came back as a zombie, and turned water into wine, to whatever the fuck Scientology is. They're all batshit crazy. All I see on screen, though, is a man who cares so much about the industry that he's in that he's probably willing to kill himself for it. Before the movie started, there was this, uh, like, jump-in message from Tom Cruise thanking us for coming to the theater to see his movie. Basically saying that he made it for us. 
And I want to thank Tom Cruise, because both my wife and I had a fantastic time at the movies, and he was the reason why. This movie made us laugh, it made us cry, it made us fist pump. With traditional blockbuster films on the brink of extinction, sitting next to a CGI dinosaur film and a CGI superhero film on the theater marquee, Top Gun Maverick kicked practical ass. Speaking of kicking ass, today's sponsor, Kaboom, is the bomb. Literally. But here's the thing about bombs, they can be really dangerous. Just ask James II, King of Scots, or Jason Pierre-Paul and his eight and a half fingers. Luckily, lighting bombs by hand is a thing of the past, thanks to their new black market product, the Detonator app. Now you can safely blow up fireworks or even your enemies from a distance. Simply link the app and your explosive device via Bluetooth, stand back, and press the big red button. Any idiot can do it, so send one of your bumbling henchmen for an easy and safe morale boost. And hey, if it's not working for some reason, they've got a dedicated customer service team that will help you get right back on track. But hey, don't take my word for it. The app is trusted by the Chechen Mafia and even a friend of the show, North Hollywood Henry, the Detonator app. Download it in your Black Market App Store today and get blasted. And while you're in the App Store, one more plug for me. If you haven't done so already, please take a second, open up that podcasting app, give me at Force 5 a rating, and review. Follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. All right, let's get back to the show. Dan Budnick. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, my guest is Dan Budnick. He's a podcaster and author, and his newest book, From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, Exploring TV's Henningverse 1962 to 1971, is out now. It's available in the link you can find in the show notes. Dan Budnick, how are you tonight? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be on the show. I've listened to it. I enjoy it. And I want to talk about movies in a list form, because I don't do that that often. And I love making <laughs> so, and I generally just do it sort of by myself, so there's no one to bounce off of. Well, I will be your list nerd for the night. Normally, I'll get into like favorite movies that wouldn't be on your list, but I know there's probably some of your favorite movies that could make this list. So we'll make it easy. We'll go towards your podcast topics. Maybe what are some of your favorite TV movies? That that you have out there, and we'll talk about your podcast here in a second. Okay, I, I was going to say I'm going to I'm going to uh, name half a dozen of my all time favorite TV movies, and and they're not and 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 one or two of them you may not have heard of, but um, you know I'm the Night Stalker. Oh yeah, Darren McGavin, the Night Stalker, of course. Um, uh, um, now you might think I'd say I duel, but I'm actually going to say Night Terrors, which is with Valerie Harper, and it's kind of the female version of Duel. And oh, it's really, okay. it's, it was really darn good. It was made in 75, 76. Uh, then I'm going to say Satan's Triangle with uh, Doug McClure. And I think Vera Miles, uh, don't quote me on that. Um, which involves the Bermuda Triangle and the sort of a sort of haunted, maybe not haunted ship. Okay. Uh, then one of my, um, one of my two, two of my absolute favorites that both have Christopher George in them, uh, is, uh, are the House on Green Apple Road. Which was made in the late '60s and came out in '70 or so, and it's basically it's based on a uh, detective novel, and it's uh, it's a character Dan August who would actually have his own TV show, not the the, the character, not the there isn't a real guy named Dan August <laughs> that I know of. There could be, there could be, um, and Burt Reynolds would be Dan August in the show, but in the movie, it's 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 uh, Christopher George. It's an excellent mystery with Janet Lee and a bunch of other great uh, actors, and then. 
probably my favorite. Oh, I only got to five. Let me throw in a sixth one. Wait a second. Let me. <laughs> yeah, you can't false advertise. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that murder. She said <laughs> Linda Day George, um, the one where she sees a man being killed, and she sees the killer. She calls the cops, and when the cop shows up, one of them is the killer. Ooh. And it's it's her and Telly Savalas, and it's he's the killer. And he's the bad cop, and that's a really good one. But my, my the the TV movie I watch the most uh, is uh, is one of the Christopher George from around seventy one, directed by probably my favorite TV movie director John Llewellyn Moxie. It's called Escape, hmm. and it was it was a tec- technically a pilot um, that didn't become a TV show. But um, he plays a uh, Christopher George plays a famous world famous escape artist who um, gets involved in a really crazy storyline with John Vernon and William Wyndham and, and Avery Schreiber and Gloria Graham. And it's really kind of a nutty film that you watch it. It starts off kind of calm. And then as it goes in deeper, deeper, you're like, this is kind of goofy. And it's just, it's, it's a <laughs> lot of fun. And so that's, that's one, that's one of those ones I can put on almost like a comfort movie. I can put, cause it's only about 72 minutes. I can just throw it on. I go into a magical, weird world for a while, and it's nice. But but those are those are my uh, um, top six, and I know they're all the seventies. But that's that's my that's my favorite era of the TV movies, the seventies. You know, I'm constantly amazed by your knowledge of TV shows, TV movies from the seventies and the eighties. Obviously, I've become familiar with your stuff from one of your podcasts that you're on, Made for TV Mayhem. You're yeah. also on at least one other podcast. But uh, why don't you talk to us real quick about Made for TV Mayhem, what that show's all about and why people should listen. Uh, well, it's, it's, um, there, there, it's, it's, we've been doing it for now for about six years and we try to do it every yeah. month, but sometimes it's a little off. Um, <laughs> and it's myself and uh, co-host, the main host is uh, the great Amanda Reyes, who is a um, TV movie, the expert. She's the historian. She, you'll find her on all sorts of TV movie commentaries, writing liner notes for booklets, lots of slasher films, horror films too. She, she we're big fans of those. And, um, yeah. she wrote a book called Are You in the House Alone? A TV movie compendium. And it has a really, really long subtitle that I'm not going to say because I don't have it nearby. Um, but, um, uh, she, she wrote that. And it's a be- it's a beautiful, uh, full of essays and reviews of TV movies. And um, I'm, I'm happy to say that I actually have about a half a dozen reviews in there too, and um, and and it's it's myself and her and uh, Nathan Johnson, who's one of the hosts of the great slasher film podcast, The Hysteria Continues. And we've been doing the doing the show, like I said, for about six years. And Amanda usually picks a topic, whether it be a director. The last episode we did was Jano Schwartz, the guy who made Jaws two. Um, yeah. Two of his TV movies, and we've we focused on actors, actresses, themes, that that sort of thing, and we just have a great time. We talk about the movies. A man is full of. She's the research expert. She's got all the all the facts, all the everything at her disposable, at her disposable, at her disposal, and um, she just it's it's um it's it's I think it's a fun time because TV movies a lot of time are are, are knocked for being vastly inferior to theatricals, and some of them definitely are, but the best ones are really good. And you would be surprised if you you haven't looked into them to buy Amanda's book. You'll find there are so many different genres and areas they go into it. It's not like they're not all like two hour disease of the week or like, you know, (laughs) the Amy Fisher story kind of thing. A lot of them, like the ones I just named, they're mysteries, there's horror, there's sci-fi. Occasionally there's comedy. They don't do comedy that much, but occasionally they do. Um, And it's just... um, 
it's just such a rich, um, and I was going to say sort of untapped uh, vein of movies, but actually over the past five, six years, we've, we've kind of gone to quite a few of them and quite a few of them have come out on, um, uh, DVD and Blu-ray and such, which has been fantastic. So, uh, so that's made for TV mayhem. And, um, uh, should I mention, would you like to hear about my other show? Did you mention the, my other show? I forgot I was talking. <laughs> Not on the air. No, let's talk about eventually super train. Oh yes. <laughs> I was, I didn't, I didn't know you. I, I knew you knew the made for TV mayhem show. I hadn't realized you listened to that. And I was kind of like, Oh, that's, Thank you. And, and so I was going to say more, but then we started recording. Um, the Adventure Super Train is a short-lived TV show podcast. Um, uh, we cover short-lived TV shows that never got enough love. Eventually, we will cover Super Train. Super Train from 1979, known at the time for being the most expensive flop in TV history. Uh, something like $1 million an episode. It's basically, it's a love boat oh. on a train. <laughs> I've seen a few episodes. It's not quite Love Boat on a Train, but it's almost Love Boat on a Train. It's a little more serious, and there aren't as many plot lines in, in each thing. They tend to focus more on one sort of story. Um, not to say that it's great, but um, but I've been doing that podcast. It'll be um, July 4th, 2022 is my six-year anniversary. I'm at about yeah. 100, 127 episodes. And the way uh, the average episode works is like the um, – uh, the most recent one I put up, there are three segments. I have three guest hosts. And um, the the first segment of the last one was uh, myself and my friend Christopher Bly are discussing Battlestar Galactica at the original. And we're on episode 12, I think it was, Fire in Space. And we've been like, for the previous 11 episodes, we go episode by episode through the entire series. It's kind of like a mini podcast within the bigger podcast and then we have galactica cast we're calling it and then i'm almost done with a friend of mine tim turner uh we're discussing kolchak and we just discussed the youth killers we have one episode left with that and then my uh good friend uh kristen hawes who's a writer and also a podcaster she has a great hawaii 50 podcast that i guessed on once a season um her and i are discussing tales of the gold monkey an action adventure show from the early eighties. And we're only like four or five episodes into that, but we, we go through them and like when, when Kolchak is done, bye bye, Tim, someone else will come on and we'll start a different show. Hopefully in a different era, not in the seventies, sixties, nineties, maybe we went into the fifties once. And so it's sort of like, um, you know, what's what we're talking about at the beginning of the year may be completely different from what we talk about at the end of the year. And I just kind of like that there's, the you know, we're on episode 12 of this, 19 of this, episode 5 of this, and they kind of move and shift. And some hosts return, some don't. Not that they don't like me, they're just busy. And <laughs> and so, so in, in general, it's kind of a fun show because, like, like I said, it's we we I love short lived TV shows and we generally like really get into it. Like, I would, um, uh, some, some of the best uh, runs we had, I think, my wife and I talking about Ellery Queen from mid-70s, Amanda from Made for TV Mayhem, and I talking about Joni Loves Chachi. Oh, yeah. And uh, my friend, my friend uh, Charlie Brown, um, talking about Manimal. And boy, do we get in-depth <laughs> talking about Manimal. So, that, so that's my other big, big podcast that I do. I'm always fascinated by short-lived TV shows, and I wasn't... You know, I was born in the early 80s, so I don't have that deep of a knowledge of those in the 70s and the 80s, but it's always fascinating to me. I could definitely pick out a few from the 2000s, like Fastlane yeah. or the Black Donnellys that, um, you know, it's fascinating. They're, they're made for 13 episodes and then you never see them again. It's bizarre. And and some of them, some of them work, work beautifully just as they are. 
Um, and like, like, like the Ellery Queen show I mentioned, that's one season from the mid seventies. There were like 22 episodes. Every one of them is quite good. And if it gone on for four, five or six seasons, it could have been like murder. She wrote just spinning its wheels and doing the same damn thing over and over again. But, but, and, and then some shows like, uh, I covered beyond Westworld, the first Westworld show from 1980. There are only five episodes and you watch the five episodes and you think nobody knew where this was going. Thank God. It's, it's, it's really odd to watch because you're like, I think it's like you didn't, no one thought ahead. You just showed up, yeah. you had the robots, and you just start goofing. And it's, it doesn't does make sense. Well, that's a, a good segue. Normally, I'm really bad at segues, but uh, thanks for that softball because today we're talking sheer audacity films. This is a term that you coined while writing for Bleeding Skull. And mm-hmm. obviously, you and I kind of discussed your definition of the topic before we started constructing our list. But why don't you tell the audience how you would describe what you coin the sheer audacity film? Uh, the the sheer audacity, the term was born when I was reviewing a film for Bleeding Skull in 2006 or s- seven, uh, which is on my list, so I can't tell you what it is. And nice. as I sat there, well, I actually have it playing right now on the TV right next to me. <laughs> oh, memories. And I actually did a podcast about it once, which may give it away if you know, if you know my other podcast. Um but and I was just sitting there watching the film, and I'll talk more about it when I get to it. But you just sit there watching it, going, "So someone made this. Someone was able to sell it to someone who put it on VHS, and then me, the idiot, bought it, and now I'm watching it. And it's like every rule you might have regarding the way movies work. Oh, oh no, they're gone. They they don't exist <laughs> in this film. They do. I, I I will explain it more later, but it's. It, the the initial term came out of just watching a film, and and I will say this: I love this film. I own it on VHS. That's the only way that you could probably it's probably on YouTube or something. But um, I own it on VHS, and I've seen it twenty times. I would say I absolutely adore it. But however, however, it is one of the most boring films you'll ever see. And if you could stay awake all through it, hey, congrats, well done, you did good. But I just it, it puts me in a certain space, and I just love it. And it's like, as I said, everything about it is wrong, and you think the sheer audacity of these people making this film, putting it together, and thinking that some idiot would pay money to enjoy it is astounding to me. And it's just like wow. That's like that's like showmanship, you know. That's Barman Bailey kind of kind of stuff. Um, but on and you know home video, um, and um, there are a lot of different categories I have for um, uh, sheer audacity because they're not only films that one might consider bad; they can also be some of the best films ever made. They are they are films where you whether it's good or bad, you you just go into it, watch it, come out of it, and think. Wow, I can't I can't believe they got away with that. I can't believe someone came up with that idea and they made it into a movie. I can't that, that sort of thing. And I have I have three examples of the beginning, middle, and end way that they work. One of them is a TV show example because um I just came up with it right before we started recording and I thought it was a good one. Um but uh it can be uh Sher Audacity film can be a film that you hear about and you go, How are they gonna do that? <laughs> How are they going to pull that off? And the example is the best example I have is Rear Window, and that which is a great film. Yeah, and so it's Hitchcock who's been making Hitchcock been making movies for thirty years or so at that point, and they say, well, "So what's your next film going to be?" Oh, Jimmy Stewart, he's in a wheelchair. 
He's broken his leg. He can't get out of the wheelchair. And he spends the whole movie with Grace Kelly hanging over his shoulder, looking through binoculars on his apartment window at people on the near nearest apartment building. And there may or may not be a murder. And the executive's going, okay. And, and the big thing is, we never leave the room. It's like, now wait, <laughs> how was it going to be like 20 minutes or something? No, no, no. So, so our hero has a broken leg and can't move. Yes. And he sits there peeping on people for how long? 90 to 100 minutes. And you think that, you know, when you first hear that, you know, you're pretty sure it's going to be good, even if you don't, just because it's Hitchcock, it's Jimmy Stewart, it's Grace Kelly. Um, but, but also in the back of your mind, you're like, wow, I, I wonder, like, that's, that's, that's a lot of audacity. To, to like say, because he had done a couple films previously that had a very similar kind of um, feel to them um, and, and a very similar sort of experimentation kind of, I guess that, I guess that's experimentation in a good way is something like rear window. And, and so there's movies like that. Um, and then there are movies that as you're watching them, you, and, and the one I mentioned just previously, which you don't know the name of yet is one of those. Um, I was, uh, the example I'm going to use is one. I think a lot of people have seen the basic premise is a family goes on vacation somewhere in Texas. They get lost and have to spend the night at a house with a really weird guy. And then things get even weirder. And that's Manos, the Hands of Fate, which I know a lot of people know from Mr. Science Theater, or, or, or maybe they don't. But, th- but that is an example of a movie where if you were to just read a, uh, um, uh, a tagline or you had an old TV guide, you know, and you're looking at four 4.30 in the morning and they're showing movies, Manos, the Hands of Fate, a family goes into the doorway to hell or something like that. You're like, oh, interesting. And then you sit there watching it and you're going, oh, my God. And I'm not going to go into Manos. I'm sure we're all we're all familiar with all the um, the beautiful faults of, of Manos, um, but but Man- Manos is a great example of a film. You just sit there, kind of shaking your head, going, "I can't, I I don't believe it, I don't believe it," and people still don't believe it to this day. <laughs> um, and the third one, I'm going to use um, I'm going to use a TV example, and this is the one where when you get to the end of it, you think you've been watching one thing, or you thought something was happening. And I don't mean specifically like a twist. But but something a little bigger than that kind of it can it can be a twist. But the example I was going to use is is um and 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 what it does is it changes your whole perception of what you watched, and then you have to go back and watch it again if you so choose, and and sort of everything rings differently as you're moving through it the second time. And and the example I was going to use I was going to use the TV show Doctor Who, uh, in in series nine. Uh, the new the new run from 2015, I think. There's an episode, uh, second Peter Capaldi season. There's an episode with the twelfth Doctor and Clara called "Sleep No More." It's a found footage episode where they land on a spaceship far in the future, where they have they have put in these machines that um, uh, to make workers more efficient. Instead of needing eight hours of sleep, they climb in this machine, and the machine puts them through the entire eight hours worth of sleep in like 15 minutes, so they can get back to work. But something goes wrong, and there are monsters. And like I said, the episode is found footage. So a lot of like there are a lot of soldiers, and they have cameras, like Rec Two style. They have cameras, you know, and their their helmets and stuff like that. And, and the whole thing goes along, and there are monsters, and there are crazy things, and revelation, this, that, and the other. Then it ends. The Doctor and Clara leave, and everyone's like, "Phew, ah!" And then the final minute, we see 
I think it's the scientist who created the thing, and he's, he's looking at the camera. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil exactly what happens, but he's looking at the camera, and he he begins to wrap things up. And the more he talks, the more you realize that something much stranger has been going on, and that what we've been shown is a false narrative that's been set mm-hmm. up by not quite the monsters, but the bad thing that's in there. And it's I'm not going to go further into it, but when you get to the end of the final scene in the credits roll, you're like, wait a minute, the Doctor and Clara, they just lost. Everybody, they didn't win. And so you have to go back to the beginning, and then you can see little bits and pieces here and there where you go, oh, okay. All right. Oh, I got it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It's like, yeah, you, you know what I mean, where you, you hit the end and something happens right near the end where you have to go back and revisit the entire thing because you've been given what you what you, what you thought it was one, going in one direction actually was going in another kind of thing. So so those are sort of the three main the tenets of um of its its of of sheer audacity films something beforehand that makes you go hmm how's this going to work or what are they thinking something as you're watching it where you go how is this working what are they thinking and then something when you get to the end you go how did that work what am i thinking and then you go back and they're about there are all sorts of mini categories within which we i'm sure will cover in our picks but that's that's the oh, yeah. basic thing about it and they can't the, and the thing about a strange audacity film in the end is it can't be every film but i'm sure there are people out there who are like uh oh i, I don't want to name a movie though in case in case it's on you like if if you show someone like a concert film for a band they don't like to someone that's got to be like oh the sheer audacity of giving them a concert film that's not quite what i mean you know, it's, 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 um, it's, but, but what we'll, you will see as we go through what, what we mean. And, uh, so I hope that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's that, um, there's that Jackie Chan meme of him just looking confused. And I use that kind of like as my basis when I watch a movie and yes. that's my reaction. That's, that's a sheer audacity film to me. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple on here. Dan Budnick, let's say we get to this list, my friend. Yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. You know what's going to happen? Top five sheer audacity films. Because this is a really squishy, really broad topic, I'm going to let you kick things off and kind of set the tone here. What do you got at number five? Number five, we are going to 1967. Uh, We are going to a genre of film that I, I would love to write a book on, and that's weird kids' movies. Oh, nice. And we are going to a director that a lot of you might know but not for kids' movies. A gentleman uh, named Herschel Gordon Lewis, who was originally known for nudie films and then made more or less the first, more or less the first gore film with Blood Feast. And throughout the 60s made, if you look at his filmography, made some of the, he's so eclectic, the, the films he made. He made a, uh, he made um, redneck films. He made, um, sort of a musical. He made uh, uh, Rowan and Martin Laugh-In ripoff. He did so many weird things, and he does them all the same way. He puts the camera in front of people. They act. He rarely moves the camera. and Nothing really happens. The actors aren't really great. But every once in a while, something happens and you go, whoa! So that's kind of the, the style. This is the ultimate version of that. In 1967, from what I can glean, um, there was some sort of um, spook show host kind of guy who wanted to um 
kind of uh, play up a magician. I'm not sure. I think this was in Florida. Don't 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 quote me on that. But who wanted to play up sort of a local magician? And they had this kids stage show they did, where he he was Merlin and he did lots of magic tricks. And it's a movie called. It well it has two titles. The one I watched it under was "The Magic Land of Mother Goose." <laughs> Get set for the happiest surprise we've seen in this theater. The Magic Land of Mother Goose. Here are all your old friends. Old King Cole, the merry old soul. The rag doll full of mischief. Merlin the wizard with his strange and wonderful magic. Watch Merlin's battle of wits with the wicked old witch. And there's Mother Goose herself. Trying to keep her house in order isn't very easy. When Bo Peep loses her sheep, and Merlin has to bring her a sheep out of thin air. For sheer fun and pleasure, you've never seen a show to equal this one. All in glorious, beautiful color. The magic land of Mother Goose. It's crammed with action and excitement. Watch old King Cole's Fiddler's Three appear from an empty chest. And then laugh as the rag doll and the jack-in-the-box try to dance to their tune. It's also known as Santa Visits the Magic Land of Mother Goose. I haven't seen Santa Visits. Santa Visits apparently was done a little... The movie's only an hour long. But Santa Visits was done later on and it added um, uh, uh, framing footage of Santa basically talking about Mother Goose and then saying, let's go to the Magic Land. Just to make the film a little longer. But the film itself is basically, it's an hour-long kids' stage show. There's a gigantic book in one corner that says Mother Goose on it. There's a, like a, is there a throne? I don't know. It's, there's like a throne and not much else. And it opens with old King Cole stepping out of the book, dancing around, um, calling out Raggedy Ann, calling out uh, some other people from Mother, not that Raggedy Ann's in Mother Goose. She just happens to be in the thing. Don't, don't ask. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> she, he calls out other characters from Mother Goose stories. And then Merlin shows up and starts doing magic tricks. And then a prince and a princess fall in love. Then a wicked witch shows up and they burn her to death. And then Jesus. Mother Goose shows up <laughs> and, and there's lots of going back and forth with magic tricks and stuff like that. And the whole thing is done live on a stage doesn't seem to be an audience and Herschel has two maybe three cameras set up one main camera that just focuses on the whole stage and then one possibly two on either side that try to follow the actors around and so basically you get an hour-long filmed stage show but it's not a dynamically filmed stage show. It's not, it's not, you know, things aren't explode. Well, I mean, they set the witch on fire. That's fun. But it's basically, imagine, imagine like a community theater doing a really cheap, slightly underwhelming, well, maybe more than slightly underwhelming. Hey, look at us go. (laughs) Yeah. We're with (laughs) mother goose kind of thing. And they're dancing all around. And meanwhile, you've got a director who doesn't seem to know where people are going. So half the time the camera is like, oh, they're over there. Okay. And King, old King Cole will dance across the stage and the camera like jerks after him. And that's the whole movie. It's, it's an hour of the stage show. Herschel Gordon Lewis turned on a couple of cameras. They edited it together. And that's the entire movie. And the thing about it is that's audacious enough, but I have seen the trailer for it and they pitch it as kids. You're going to have the most fun you've ever had in your life. It's Merlin. It's mother goose. It's the wicked witch. The only cinematic thing they do is when the wicked witch shows up, 
they put like a red filter over the lens. So suddenly everything looks devilish, but that's the only thing they do throughout the entire movie. The rest is literally a stage show that he films and, and they released it for kids to watch. And, you you know, I don't, you know, and you, you think sometimes, boy, we don't, we don't respect kids, do we? Wow, this is terrible. This is terrible. I can't, I can't imagine sitting there watching that. I mean, it's a movie that you can just imagine the kid, kids 10 minutes in running up and down the aisles and screaming. You can't, it's, and it's, and, and this is, this is, and actually this is kind of one of the calmer sheer audacity films on my list. But this is, this is a, this is to me is a great example of it. It's a filmmaker who can make decent film, not great films, but he can make decent films, right. but he's been asked to just film a stage show and they release it. And how many kids just walked away going, I don't get it, Mama. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds bizarre. It it is. It's it's worth um it's it's def- I've seen it a few times, but it's definitely worth watching once, just just to sit there and and you just think like like because everyone's is is they're acting their hearts out and you know they're and, and the camera always seems to be slightly off. So like when the prince stands up and the princess is asleep on, on a bench or, or something or other, and he stands up and he begins to sing. I love you. It's like it's like the camera's in such a way where he's not like looking towards us. He's kind of looking off in another direction. And it's like, where's he looking? There's no audience there. Have him look at the camera. Have him look towards us. And they're just all these weird these weird I mean, like I said, I think that Hershey Gordon Lewis probably hadn't seen the play before they did. Right. He was like, Yeah, we'll just shoot, we'll just wait. We got it. We got it. And they're just you just you watch it and you go, and uh, <laughs> And even some of them, there's a, the, you know, you know that thing the magicians do where they have like, um, they'll have like a little handkerchief or something. They'll pretend it's alive. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like bounce around. Three minutes. There's a three minute segment in here where Merlin bounces his little handkerchief around the stage. Three minutes. And for about 30 seconds, it's great because you're looking at it going, how's he doing that? How's he doing that? Two minutes later, you're thinking, I don't believe this is still happening. And it is still happening, but old King Cole loves it. So who am I to argue with the king? This sounds absolutely bizarre. It sounds bizarre that anybody would want Herschel Gordon Lewis to yes. do a film like this, like The Wizard of Gore. Yeah. Exactly. And comes in yeah. to do a, a kids movie and somebody's burned on stage. I need to I need to at least check that scene out of this <laughs> yeah, thing. That sounds amazing. You'll, you'll, you'll see it and you'll and you'll you'll sit there and you go, Are they is she are they really huh? Wow. Okay. Not that it, not that she's screaming in pain. It's very casual. You know, it's all very casual. Uh, but it's like, wow, that's, that's, I, yeah, it's, it's some, um, if, if you, if you like, if you like, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis movies, it's definitely one to watch at least once. Um, if you like just sitting there going, what, think of the children, please think of the children. This is one to do. All right. That's the magic land of mother goose from yes. 1967. That's a, a strong way to start out the list. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go, well, I guess there's, there's two on here that I do not like watching, but this one is for a different reason. And I'll get to that in a second. I watched this movie for the first time about a year ago, and I still cannot for the life of me figure out how director Steve Miner had the sheer audacity to make a movie about a white kid who couldn't get into Harvard. So to do so, he goes blackface <laughs> and snags an African-American scholarship. You're laughing, so I know that you know this movie is Soul Man yes. from 1986. Soul Man is a comedy with heart and soul. It's the best film of 1986, says the Star-Telegram. 
Thank you, sir. Sneak previews called it a brash, outrageous comedy. The New York Times says it's its frat house version of Tootsie. And WABC Radio adds it's a wacky comedy. See, Thomas Howell is very good. Right on. All comedies are not created equal. Soul Man. Rated PG-13. Now playing. Consult your local newspaper for showtime. It's wildly racist, but stars C. Thomas Howell in his most embarrassing role, which is saying a lot because he's been in some terrible movies, like an astronomical amount of bad movies, (laughs) and co-stars Ray Don Chong, and somehow attracted Darth Vader himself, the talents of Edward James Olmos, as a law professor. The fact that anybody thought this script was fit to film is just, I, I can't comprehend it. It's offensively racist from the poster to the yes. end credits yes. and and still another thing that confuses the, the heck out of me is that c thomas howell still defends his work in this movie like he has a quote I, I put the quote down here our intentions were pure we wanted to make a funny movie that had a message about racism end quote i mean i guess it has a message about <laughs> racism i don't know that it's the message they wanted to yes, get across and it right. definitely wasn't funny and yeah. for those of you who haven't seen Soul Man, I think you should watch it just to just for the sheer audacity of it. Like, how does something like this get made? But I'm just going to give you a, a very sh- I'm going to describe a short scene here that that explains why this movie is so so uh, like full on racist. Um, so Melora Hardin is in this. You'll know her as Jan from The Office. She's one of the love interests of the main character, Mark, who, by the way, turns african-american through experimental tanning pills that also turn his hair curly (laughs) and uh, and and she doesn't understand that this is a white person that has gone blackface and so she makes love to this dude and then exclaims afterwards she exclaims i could really feel 400 years of anger and oppression with every (laughs) pelvic thrust that's what she says to him after sex And then she takes him home to her family for dinner one night. And her family is sitting around the table as if they've never seen a black person before. And it shows each of their visions of what they envision this man as. So the mom gets all hot and bothered and sees him as this, like, jungle warrior who hunts for white women. She's, like, (laughs) fanning herself because she thinks it's hot. Her brother sees him as prince. For no reason at all. They're from Boston. It's not like they're in Minnesota or or something like that. And then the father, played by Leslie Nielsen, goes full racist in his vision. And you see Mark, dressed in a pimp costume, calling Melora Hardin a bitch and a slut, and all while scarfing down a slice of watermelon. I think everybody should watch it just to try and figure out what the hell they were trying to go for. Yes. Yeah, I, I I remember when that came out. Yeah, and thinking I don't know, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. I, I was thinking I was. I was um, fourteen, thirteen, or fourteen, and I thought I might. I might pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they they say that you know, obviously the '80s were different times, but even this movie was like picketed. There were um, there were people that were saying, you know, NAACP, don't go and watch this f- trash. Uh, 
Yeah, so that's Soul Man from 1986. Hey! Have you seen it, by the way? I, I know you didn't see it when you were 14, but did you have you seen it? Uh, I, I saw it a year or two later on HBO or Cinemax one night, and mm-hmm. I do re- I do remember that scene around the, t- the dinner table, and I vaguely remember her line there because I think I I I. I don't know. I think, I think, I remember, I think it was just like me and my dog, and I was like embarrassed. I kept looking over at him to see if he was giving me a look. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Why am I still watching this? I think I watched it all. I remember moments from it. I remember the, the tanning thing doing the stuff to him, and I remember right on Chong. Gonna, but I, I yeah. All right, uh, number four for you. Okay, so now we are going to go to, we're going to go to the 90s, and we're going to go to 1994. And we are going to go to Hungary. And uh, this film, it's funny, this, this film, the title of this film, I never knew how to say it. But then when I looked uh, looked it up, I realized, I don't, it, it isn't pronounced exactly the way it's spelled, but it's meant, it's, that's how it's kind of meant to be said. And it's the movie Satan Tango. Oh, I've never heard of this. It's, I, I forgot to write the director's name down and I closed the um, browser tab with his name on it. But ca- uh, uh, I'm sorry. I forget the director's name. He's a, he's a well-known Hungarian director. I'm Ooh, looking up feel... right now. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, and the thing about the movie is this. The, the movie, the basic premise of the movie is it's a – I'm not going to tell you much about it um, because I think the more I tell, the more you'll think, oh, Dan, I'm not going near this movie. Um, it's about like a Hungarian farm collective who have – um, I forget if it's they've either saved up money or the government has given them money to uh, move to a better spot for them to live and farm. And um, some of the members of the community start to get a little greedy and want to try to get the money and sort of control the collective. Um, and the, the movie is, uh, first off, it's in black and white. So that may, that may turn some people off. Uh, and I don't think that's a sheer audacity thing specifically to do something in black and white in the nineties, but for some it could be. Well, this is, this is around the time of Schindler's List. The, the thing about the movie that, that gives it that sheer audacity flavor, it's two, two major things is that one, almost all of the scenes are done in really long takes. So the opening take of the film, and it's a little tough to describe. It's basically the camera sort of on the ground. And you can see it's, it's like in a muddy field and you can see like a nearby barn and you can see houses like a little ways away and cows begin to pass the camera. And then the camera begins to track to the left, I think, following the cows and the cows go through a couple buildings and we follow that. We, we don't go into the buildings, but we can see them pass by windows and then we see them come out the other thing. And it's basically, we're seeing the entire village, but from the point of view of this muddy field and with cows in front of us. And this scene goes on for, I didn't time it, five or six minutes. And it's one of those scenes where you, you, if, if you just hear about it, you think, hmm, I'm not sure. But actually, it's really kind of cool the way he does it. And, and he, he, this is a sheer audacity where the majority of the time he pulls off all these weird things that he tries to do. And so many of the <laughs> scenes Got are it. in really long takes. Sometimes he moves the camera. Sometimes he just sets it down and the people move around within the frame. There's a really long sequence where like the whole town is, is at a, is at like a, a bar, a social place dancing. And apparently like most of the cast were drunk. So they're kind of just falling around improvising all kinds of stuff. And the film was, the film was broken up into 12 segments. 
um, which are supposed to relate to the way the tango is done. I've, I've never really done the tango, so I don't, I don't fully, um, know the, the structure of it. And also the film kind of moves around a bit in time. It'll do, it'll do that thing where like it'll follow one character for a bit to a certain point and they'll interact with another character. Then that one character, that first character, their story will end for a time and we'll go back to the second character and see what led them up to meeting the first character kind of thing. Oh yeah, I love those. And it's it's really nicely done. And the the and and the thing about it is, he said in the film, the director has said there are approximately a hundred and fifty shots in the entire film, which is not a lot, especially especially when the film is seven hours and nineteen minutes long. <laughs> oh shit. That's the sure. That's the super sure audacity part. You start with the black and white. You start with the fact that it's a very sort of simple story that does go weird sometimes. Then you add in the really long takes, and then you add in the fact that it's seven hundred and no six hundred. Seven hours of nineteen minutes long. I was gonna four hundred and thirty nine minutes or something like that. It's yeah, it's seven hours long. Now, now I I've watched it twice. I've never watched it all the way through. I think that would be rough. Yeah, it's sort of broke. It's broken into like two two and a, two and a half hour segments, and it really is very good. But you either need to give it a full like day. Or like I'm gonna watch part one on Friday, part two on Saturday, and then the rest on Sunday, kind of thing, because it's it's based on a novel. And what I've read is that it's one of the few times where every portion of the novel was used, every character, every storyline, every scene from the novel is in the book. You know, it's like when Kenneth Branagh did Hamlet and he did the whole whole text, and it took four hours and twenty minutes, or however long it took. You know, this is this is this is something like that. So it's a really interesting film that at the same time, the moment people find out finds out it's over seven hours, they tend to run far away. And and it's like, oh, and it's Hungarian. Oh, it's in black and white. Oh, it's a lot of long takes. Oh, fantastic. So but 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 it's actually really good, but it is as it is it is it is a step above the sheer audacity of Hersher Gordon Lewis shooting a bad musical. Um, on a on a stage for an hour. This this one takes us a little bit higher into. Luckily, the person in charge knew what they were doing. If the, I mean, if Herschel Gordon Lewis had done, I mean, Herschel Gordon Lewis did a two hour vampire film, A Taste of Blood, which some love and something feels like it goes on for seven hours and nineteen minutes. So, so Satan Tango, I recommend it, but not all in one sitting, please. Um, although the director has said he prefer you watch it in one sitting, I would argue that with him. I would say no. No, that's a butt number, real big time. Directed by uh, Bellatar was the name you're <laughs> yes. looking for. Yes, thank you, thank you. So, so yeah, that, that's my that's my fourth one, and that that is that is an actual, actually kind of quite beloved movie. I have it on Blu-ray. Um, uh, like I said, I've seen it twice. I think it's great. You know, I love foreign movies. I am good with black and white movies, mm-hmm. but when you said seven hours, I had to grip this <laughs> desk not to run away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking up like I looked it up to to find who the director was, and it's got all kinds of high marks across the board, like really great reviews. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really good. It's just if if you, I mean, you might almost just treat it like um a TV show, treat it like you're sure. binge watching a seven hour TV show. Could you imagine doing the uh, Blu-ray commentary for this one? Oh my, <laughs> oh my, oh boy, yeah, that. <laughs> you know, I thought about it. 
Well, this one is obviously very highly rated. My number four, not so much, but <laughs> I I think this one is a lot of fun, and I think it's made better by knowing the story behind it. And the movie is Fearless Hyena 2 from 1983. Oh, yeah. yeah, so you're familiar with this one. I'm glad. I am, I am, I am. So the first Fearless Hyena was uh, came out in 1979, and it was released here as a movie called Revenge of the Dragon. But it was a fun slapstick kung fu movie directed by and starring Jackie Chan before he became a huge sensation over here with like the police police story movies. Um, and it did pretty well. And, and Jackie found himself working for the studio of a guy named Lo Wei. And while he was at that studio, he they decided to make a second one, Fearless Hyena 2. But Jackie Chan wasn't happy. He wanted to go work for Golden Harvest, which if you're a Kung Fu movie fan, surely you know of the studio Golden Harvest. They put out, I mean, some of the greatest Hong Kong Kung Fu movies ever made. Uh, so he left and he left after only filming probably like 30 percent of this movie. And like 70s, 80s, hell, even now, films sometimes just cease production for mm -hmm. many reasons. Most of the time it's money. But as a movie producer, Lo Wei had a couple of options here. Now, I mean, in his shoes, I probably would have scrapped the whole thing and <laughs> called it a wash, which happens a lot. But uh, Lo Wei, he went in another direction the because the money keeping his studio afloat was that of the triad. Mm. And so he had the triad go and threaten Jackie Chan with trouble. And uh, I mean, he threatened Jackie Chan. He's not going to budge. He's. Jackie Chan, he's going to kick yeah. your ass. Uh, that didn't convince him to come back, obviously. And uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, another really great Kung Fu star, helped mend the bridge. So Jackie Chan was out. So Lo Wei had the sheer audacity to finish the movie anyway, using a combination of three things. First off, he used uh, hired stunt doubles that look nothing like Jackie Chan. <laughs> he used footage from the first Fearless Hyena, sometimes alternate takes, and then sometimes the exact same takes used in the first film. And then he used scenes from completely unrelated other Jackie Chan movies like Spiritual Kung Fu. Mm. And so what we're left with, this final product of Fearless Hyena 2, is this patchwork film that makes no sense. Because Lo Wei put most of the new Jackie Chan footage at the beginning of the movie. So about a third of the way in, Jackie Chan just turns into completely different people who are wearing like they're, they're, at one point <laughs> they have this Jackie Chan stunt double wearing a strange fake mustache and a painted nose as like this. Oh, disguise. Yeah, I think I remember that. Like when they do frame the Jackie Chan character in frame, his face is just obscured by things like trees and bushes is hilarious. So I think if you know the story behind the movie, it's way more entertaining than if you knew nothing about yes. it. Because if you went in blind, you just think it's a terrible mess and wonder what the hell's going on. It actually has some decent Kung Fu stuff in there. It's also got way more blood than typical Jackie Chan action comedies had, which I'm sure was added, uh, you know, after he left the production. But uh, yeah, Fearless Hyena 2 is such an odd martial arts film that if you're, if you're into Jackie Chan... You're into these really messy productions mm -hmm. where they reuse footage from other movies and it looks just bizarre. This is a, a great watch. 1983's Fearless Hyena 2. That's my number oh, four. Oh, wonderful. Well, I think I saw that one first, actually, a long time oh, ago. Yeah? When we were getting into, like, in, in, in like uh, around 93, 94, when I started to get into Jackie Chan stuff, uh, I, I think I, I just, you, we rented just whatever. We didn't know what they were. 
And then I think I remember watching Fierce Hyena 2 and just, just coming away from it and thinking, that was an odd one. <laughs> and then and then watching Fierce Hyena going, okay, I got it. Okay, okay. All right. That's a great choice. Um, oh, and oddly enough, my choice is, my next choice is going to be a twofer, but I'll go quickly. And it's actually sort of a similar-ish one to to yours. And the the first film is a film called Devil Monster. The copyright on it, as you can currently watch it, is 1946. But the first thing you'll notice when you watch it, if if you know your sort of acting styles and um, the way early sound cinema looked, the first thing you'll think is this is in 1946. This is the first half of the 40s, a uh, 30s, I'm sorry, maybe 35, 36 at the latest. Um, they all, the acting is all a bit too theatrical. The, they have a bit too much like powder on their face. And it's, 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 a, it's, it's just, you can tell when you watch it, if you know 30s movies, you'll watch this and you'll go, this isn't a 1946 film. And the basic premise is that it's a small like fishing town and this boat with a bunch of guys on it are going to go look for this a fellow fisherman who went into like the South Seas or something and has gone missing. And our lead is kind of this um is is actually our lead is actually played by the guy who played Renfield in the Spanish version of Dracula from nineteen thirty one. I believe it was Renfield I believe it was Renfield. He's in love with the girl the fiance of the guy who went missing, and he wants to go along just so he can prove that the fiance is dead and he can marry her when he gets back. And so they go on a South Seas journey. The movie is 65 minutes. And I would say, and this doesn't count the fact that it has a copyright of 46, but it seems to be made 10 years earlier. I would say a good 30 to 35 minutes of it, possibly more, is all stock footage from 1920s, like ethnographic National Geographic style films, uh. it's all footage of South Sea Islands and and natives, and um, because this was the mid forties, there were uh, like topless native girls, which you, which you couldn't do um, unless they were like in a National Geographic sort of um, setting. And so it's basically they go from island to island, but they don't really go from island to island. They say we went to this island next, and then you see three minutes of random stock footage. <laughs> and then we went to here where we had a feast, and then you watch some stock footage people have a feast. And then you know, and then there's this weird scene where it's like, and we we went into this cave and we watched um it's something like we watched their sacred octopus fight a shark. I forget exactly what it is, but it's clearly like you're you're in like um like a marine land or something, and there's like an octopus and something else in the cage with it, and they're fighting. I don't know why they were doing this. Uh, because you could see like the octopus like go up against the glass, kind of. Sure. And yeah. you're just sitting there watching it, and it was so exciting. And occasionally, you know, it'll cut back to the actors, and they'll be sitting in random chairs going, wow, yeah, yeah. And then it'll cut back to all the people. And in, in fact, the movie begins, and maybe about 11 or 12 minutes into it, for about 20 minutes straight, it just does this. And it does it for so long, you forget what was going on. You start to think that, oh, I'm watching a documentary of some sort. But then it goes back to the movie. But then it keeps going back to stock footage. Even up to the end, the final scene, the big final scene is they find the guy. He's alive. They're bringing him back. And he fights a manta ray, a giant manta ray. But the way they do it is... 
they shoot footage of a manta ray like up on the surface of the water, and then they somehow I don't, I don't know exactly I'm they they play that footage and then they have the actor kind of like jump on the screen sort of to pretend like he's fighting it, and it's real and you sit there watching it going what what in the what in the hell am I watching, and it's it's there there is only. One other film I can think of that has this much, and I won't say, I won't say, maybe I'll say it later, that has this much like stock footage in it. I mean, the film is, like I said, 65 minutes and 35, maybe even 40 minutes of it is stock footage. I mean, I would say there's no more than, there's less than half an hour of actual film. The rest is all stock footage. And there's probably more than that, and I'm actually underestimating it. And you sit there, you just watch it going, who is this? I mean, apart from the occasional boob, and I don't mean the dumb guys running around on the boat or anything like that. I mean, um, apart from that, you're thinking, who was this made for? And then I did find out later on, just just a little bit, that I did find out that yeah, that that the the film was actually originally made in '36, and I, I've never seen that version. But some producer or other uh, got it in the mid '40s and decided to add all this silent footage he had, including footage with nudity. And he just made the film into such a incoherent mess that it's 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 absolutely astounding. And um, I wish I knew more about it. Like I, I don't know as much about it as you know about Fierce Hyena* too. But you can tell when you're watching it if it says if the copyright is '46, they're clearly acting in the '30s, and the stock footage is from the '20s. Something happened. Something weird happened. Yeah, that's so bizarre. Yeah, and and the other the other film, and I'll just say this quickly that has sim- a, kind of a similar story is Doris Wishman's A Night to Dismember. And Doris Wishman is one of my favorite filmmakers. But in the in the late seventies, she made a haunted house film about a family who moves into a house and they discover that their daughter is sort of um, uh, descended from a previous young woman who lived there who got possessed by evil, and she begins to kill the family members and such. But what happened, and you get either one or two stories, either either um, Doris said, well, Doris's version of the story is when she was, she shot the film, sent it to the developer, and an angry employee at the film developer place destroyed a bunch of film, including like 40 or 50% of her movie, but she had to finish the movie. So what she did is she hired uh, the porn star, Samantha Fox, and put her in a bunch of scenes took the footage she had, took some footage, some outtakes, took some footage from other movies of hers, and basically constructed a 72-minute sort of slasher film that is gloriously crazy and incoherent and and just changes changes from minute to minute. It's just like one minute's doing this, the next minute's doing that. It's almost it's almost impossible to keep up with what what's happening in the movie. And um, and a few years ago, and and we thought everyone thought that original version was lost, but a couple of years ago, someone found a copy of it, so you can compare the original haunted house version to the incoherent slasher film version, which I recommend highly. It's it's just when you and you don't even really have to know the story, but once you do, it's like okay. All right, but it's just it's nuts. It on the on the uh, just a flip of a dime, it'll go from this to that. It'll go from a softcore sex scene to a gory murder to a scene with a woman just sleeping on a couch to everyone eating lunch. You know, and it'll just go, and you're like, what is going on? And you could tell she was just flying by the seat of her pants. Just whatever she had nearby, she edited it in 
edited it in. That's tough to say. She just put it in the film and she just went on. And you could just, you can just feel like the desperation just making such a weird movie. And those, so, so those two are kind of similar ish and two, two movies that began in one way and then went super screwball before they hit our screens, more or less. It's seventy-two minutes long, so it, it's not—it's not a long movie. It—you'll—you'll it, you'll see it and you'll watch it. And it will have moments when you just go, "Huh?" It's got one of my favorite narrators in it, who will narrate constantly, regardless of whether or not there's a scene going on. Oh, do you think that was added in after the footage was lost? Yeah, I—I th- I th- I think some some of the some of the narration has that feeling of, "I think I need to explain a little bit more." But I've already sort of put the film together, and they're already talking. So I'm just gonna have them keep talking, and you you can see it's like if if you know yeah if you know like filmmaking the, the way films are made and such it's really kind of interesting to watch all the weird not not just not just picture edits but sound edits like you if you put head if you put headphones on when you're watching the movie it's a trip just hearing all the weird sound edits that go on throughout the movie so. I recommend those two. I mean, not, not, I, I, are, are both of, are either of them good films? I don't know. But are they fun? Oh, you bet your life. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. My number three is a good movie, but it's not one that I want to revisit. Uh, this, So I guess I'll start by saying that Hollywood has had a history of memorializing horrible events in history. Um, there are tons of World War II films. Films, I mean, films about Vietnam were being released while the war was still going on. It's just something that Hollywood does. And filmmakers can use films about real life tragedies in order to make a statement, which we saw with a lot of the films in the 70s and 80s about the Vietnam War, or sometimes as a unit of collective coping. This is kind of a twofer, but I'm only going to talk about one. Um, Both of these movies are well made. Both of them well-told films. I assume I've seen one. I haven't seen the other, but in 2006, I could not believe the sheer audacity in studios releasing not one, but two films based on the 9-11 attacks. Oh yeah. Now I've only seen one of these films, which is the one I'm going to talk about United 93. The other one I can't speak to that's uh world trade center, which I think is an Oliver Stone movie. Yes. With yeah, uh, yeah. yeah Nicholas cage. Um, but 9-11, f- five years later, was still fresh in – it's really like four and a half years later, but it was still super fresh in, I think, everybody's minds. Uh, Dan, I'm sure that you can probably remember where you were when 9-11 oh, yes. was happening. Oh, yes. Yeah, very clearly. Yeah, it's it's like one of those moments that's just kind of cemented into your brain. United 93 shows us the pieced together account of how passengers on that plane heroically stopped terrorists from completing a fourth strike on American soil on September 11th, 2001. It was directed by Paul Greengrass, and the actors were all unknown people or people who were actually involved in the air traffic monitoring that day. And by all accounts, a very well-made movie. Uh, Greengrass knows what he's doing. The camera work's kinetic. The acting is really, really good. To this day, though, I just don't understand why it needed to be made, especially that soon after the largest terrorist attack on our soil here in America that, like I said, was pretty fresh in people's minds. Uh, I mean, the whole world changed because of this event. Like, we didn't need to relive it. And I get that for some, this probably felt like this cathartic viewing experience. But for me, like, it's just really sad. And there's no way I would want to go to a theater and watch this. I watched this at my home by myself when I think it was like the DVD came out. And uh, this is one of those movies where it's like, you're hard crying during this one. It's 
It's one of those movies that I probably will watch again with my kid when he gets old enough to start learning about this stuff in school as like a historical account. Much like I was made, I'm sure you were made to watch like Schindler's List in school or films like that. It was made for 15 million, had no recognizable stars and pretty much took place in two locations, which is why I think it was so cheap. And it only made um, 30 million domestically. So I think a lot of people were in the same boat I was. Yeah. that being said, we may have some people listening who were too young to remember or not even born yet when the attacks happened. And if you do fall into that group, uh, I think you should watch the movie. Like I said, it's really well made. Um, Greengrass had a Best Director nod at the Academy Awards that year for it. But um, you know what? You, you know where it's going. And the experience is absolutely heartbreaking. And it's always, yeah, it's just always confused me why two movies came out uh, that soon after that event. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have, I've not seen World Trade Center. I've, I've seen a few scenes from United, but um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, yeah. I really couldn't do it. It's just like it's. Don't um, blame you. Yeah, I, I, I can see for somehow that might, yeah, like you said, be very cathartic. But I can't, I can't. I mean, like, like you said, I, I remember exactly where I was when I heard that, and it was, it was, and I had to, I had to call my wife up who was still asleep. And and say to her, honey, um, sit sit down, please. Uh, some something happened, and and I just it's I, I I couldn't when I saw there was a movie about. It, I thought, okay, well, yeah, I'm gonna pass. All right, so that was my heavy number three. Uh, what are you gonna follow up with for number two? I am going to this 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 one actually has a kind of an apocalypse in it. So Ooh, okay. And this is, we're going to, this one is, I tried to go into many decades as I could. This was one that came out in 80, but was made in 78 and 79. And this is, this, I know it's three hours long and I, I didn't pick it. Well, one of the, it is long, but it's not, but saying it after Satan Tango, three hours seems like a cakewalk. It doesn't seem like much yeah. of a problem at all. Um, it's, and it's a Peter Greenaway's first theatrical film, The Falls. <laughs> Two people represented in this film all have names that begin with the letters F-A-L-L. The names are taken from the latest edition of the directory, published every three years by the committee investigating the violent unknown event, the V-U-E for short. The names are presented in the alphabetical order in which they stand in the directory and represent a reasonable cross-section of the 19 million other names that are contained there. First sign was inflammation of the skin around the nose scar tissue on her left elbow. It's it's basically in some point in the future, but not too far in the future, because the film is clearly set in the late seventies. Um, there was a, something called the violent unknown event, the VUE, and it devastated a large part of the planet. Um, quite a few people were killed. Quite a few people weren't hurt in any way, shape, or form. But many people were affected in very strange ways um getting all sorts of weird diseases uh some people became immortal some people um seem to be turning into birds um there are all sorts of weird things that are happening to people and the premise of the 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 the, the setup of the structure of the film is that it is not a regular fiction film it is like a um it's like a uh, it's like an information 
informational film, like something you might see oh, in a yeah. class or something you might um, like, you, you, like might be made for a government agency. And it's in 92 segments, arranging from like five seconds to six or seven minutes. And it's it's almost anthology like, and it's basically there. There is a catalog published every few years that has the names of all the people who were affected by the VUE. Because once you find out you're affected, you have to report it. And when you report it, they write down all your symptoms and what's wrong with you, and 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 um, all sorts of all sorts of problems. And and some people have terrible lives. Some people don't you know there's one character in the movie who has suddenly discovers he has nine lives so he begins to use the nine lives to save other people who he sees in danger or who are drowning and things like that and he i forget how he uses his ninth ninth life but it's rather heroic and he passes away at the end of that um but the the way that the way the, the way the film is structured is all in the directory all the people whose surnames begin with fall f-a-l-l are listed so there are 92 people, and you go from beginning to end through all 92 people in the catalog. And you get you hear their story, you hear what was wrong with them. If they're still alive and they can be interviewed, they're interviewed. If they're not still alive, they do the best they can to tell you the story. Um, sometimes you'll get like just a random person. Sometimes you get a family, like four or five in a row. Um, sometimes you get a husband and a wife. Sometimes you get one time you get a husband, a wife, and an ex-wife. Um, and you'll see, uh, and throughout the movie, even though a lot of these characters are meant to be and, and kind of are very different and all over the place, you'll see characters reappear. You'll see people pop up here and there. And you go, oh, it's that person. Now, granted, since the movie is three hours long, sometimes you'll forget because it's so long. Um, but gradually, as the movie goes, it accumulates this huge, like the the, I almost want to say the not just the structure of it, which is weird because it never varies from this number 89, you know, um, Stephen Falcaster, you know, and then it tells his story. Um, and it never deviates from that. But at the same time, the creativity that Peter Greenaway pours into it to be able to keep this going for three hours. And it's constantly interesting. Usually when I watch it, I'll split it into an hour and a half and an hour and a half because it's, it's almost like too, there's almost too much. And it's just this constant information and information. And you'll get, you know, it's something like you'll get one thing mentioned about the violent unknown event, like a half hour in. And then 80 minutes later, you'll get it mentioned again. And you'll go, wait a minute, that was from there. And, and pieces start to come together about what might have happened or what might not have happened. And, and you never get the full story, but maybe you do, but it's out, it's out of order. And, and certain things happen and you, they don't, they either don't make sense or they aren't something that grabs your attention. But then like an hour later, you'll see a variation of it or see something similar to it. You'll go, wait a minute. And then you go back to that bit and go, oh, that guy was this guy, but this and that, that was happening here. And this location is that location, but we're seeing it from here instead of there. And, 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 and things start to piece together. And by the time you get to the end, it's just like you, and, and just like you, I, 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 you stand up and applaud because it's been this this incredible creative burst of energy just just hitting you, and it's it's just it's it's astounding, and it's it's like it's like I, I love the film. I've probably seen it about ten times. I watch it about once a year, and um, and I know there are other people online who have like 
uh, well, there used to be, I haven't actually checked in a few years, but like they had websites where they tried to connect all the characters and put all the things together because everything feels like it makes a beautiful sense to it. And the joy of it too, is that even though it is about sort of a, a kind of an apocalyptic event, it's also very funny. And a lot of it can, is kind of rather silly, not, not silly. Like they wear big, you know, clown shoes or something <laughs> like that. So, but silly, like certain things happen and you're like, and that's a certain thing will happen. And you go, well, that was a little silly. And these strange things happen and they build and build and just, there's a constant influx of, of weird. It's like listening to like, um, well, I was going to say like, um, a variation would be like, like the first time when I was a kid and I heard the Beatles white album. And like song after song, I was like, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And then I heard the song, I was like, that's great. And then I didn't know what was going to happen next. And it just, it was just like the the sheer audacity of throwing that much imagination on the screen, doing it in such a structured way. And it's so weird. And he doesn't really give us an ending. But like I said, maybe he does. It's just not at the ending. And so it's, it's just, it's a film. It's, it's, um, I'm, I'm a big Peter Greenaway fan. And as much as I love his other films and they're much more, this is a very cheap film. It's not, you know, it's not a lot of it is footage. He worked at the uh, British Film Institute. So he used a lot of footage that they had to put the film together. Um, not that it's like, not that it's like Devil Monster, you know, where you're sitting there going, what is going on? Because each segment, each segment is meant to be sort of a new place. And, um, and, but it's just, it's just so, it's almost thrilling at times, sort of the creativity and you we're seeing where he's going to go next. And it's three hours long and it's structured like a, like a catalog rather than a, a fictional film. And so that's, that's my number two. This sounds really interesting. This is the falls from 1980. I yes. have never heard of this and now I feel like I need to seek this out. It is out. You can get it on a, a Region 1 or a Region 2 DVD. I say get the Region 2. It looks better, and there are subtitles. And one of the things about the movie is that the um, the uh, has um, the, the VUE has done lots of things, like it's created new sexes. Oh, okay. So, so there's, so you see, so, um, and this was 1980. So, so it's created new sexes, and it's created new languages. And things, and one of the things, if you're watching the movie, if you have the subtitles playing, um, I think Peter Greenaway must have supervised them because this, there are some really weird names and things in there. And sometimes it's nice to see them on the screen. So I would recommend yeah, the region two, cool. but the re, the region one works too. And also the region one is NT, NTSC and the region two is PAL, which means the region two version is like eight minutes shorter just because it goes a little faster. So. This sounds honestly. This sounds like a. It would be ripe for a uh, for a remake on like a streaming service as a TV series. Oh, it could be. Yeah, it definitely. It definitely could be. That that would. Oh, that's that would be a great idea. All right. Uh, my number two here is. I think it falls under the sheer audacity realm for two different reasons. So, um, first off, there's a long history of really talented filmmakers who financed their first film on their own, maxing out credit cards and. Uh, getting loans from people. Kevin Smith, I think, is probably the most, uh, the easiest example to think about here who financed clerks on like $30,000 maxed out credit cards. His parents gave him like their, re whatever you call it, the second mortgage on their home, all that, all that good stuff. There's a bunch of filmmakers who have done that. Um, now, this person did that. His name is Jama Fanaka. 
And Ooh. he was part of the L.A. Rebellion, which was this collection of black filmmakers in the late 60s at UCLA. Now, in college, most classes build toward a final project or like a final paper or whatever. And of course, their film program there, same thing. You had to make a film. And Jamal Fanaka had the sheer audacity to make a feature length film, even after he was dissuaded from making something that robust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't have a budget. So what are you going to do? He used his parents' money to finance it. He applied for grants that he got to finance this. Uh, obviously, a student film going the distance, 90 minutes, this is a monumental achievement for anybody. But in the early 70s, probably even more difficult for a young African-American filmmaker. Now, the film that Fanaka made is called Welcome Home, Brother Charles. Hey. This is the color of black, baby. It's a whole lot different than white. Come on, nigga! Come on, nigga! Go! Move on! That kind of hatred brings on mania. Look, I didn't come here to be called a maniac, doctor. Now, a man damn near cuts my manhood off. Now, what am I supposed to do? Nothing? I'm a devil. Now, he's a goddamn devil, man. Well, that's hell on the fucking goddamn Oh, go to hell! You bit mother! What the hell am Welcome home, brother Charles. You done the man's time. Now you're gonna do ours. Hey, baby, what's happening? Hey, man, you telling me to wait, man? Let the biggest dope pushing all of sunny side in California out on the streets again? Hey, baby, damn! <laughs> This film follows uh, this African-American drug dealer named Charles Murray, and he gets caught up in this bungled police prostitution ring. Uh, at, the, at the very beginning of the film, it's a sting on a completely unrelated thing, and, and he gets caught up in this. He's then framed for beating up a racist cop, and he goes to solitary confinement for three years. And when he gets out, things have changed. His girlfriend's moved on to his old partner, which is kind of a, a sting, a real kick in the pants. Uh, but, you know, he's trying to clean up his life and go straight and stuff. And it feels like it's just kind of like a comment on the terrible unfairness that black people face through the justice system that has still not been repaired. And the effect that it has on somebody losing three years of their life. And an hour into this movie, like it's a little slow, but it's effective. And the lead actor, who I had never seen before, and uh, the reason is because this was his only movie. His name is Marlo Monte, and he he's pretty good in the lead role. And you, you kind of go through the difficulties of him getting a job, and he's got a new girlfriend who he's moved in with, who's an ex-prostitute turned waitress. She's trying to go straight. He feels guilty about not, not supporting the family, bringing home the bacon. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like a pretty good... Just um, really like a character piece at this point. And then about an hour in, things take a turn for the wild. And this is where, when, when you said sheer audacity films, this is one of the first ones that popped <laughs> into my head. Because we learn that during the initial arrest, one of the, uh, one of the two cops, the more racist one, tried to cut off his manhood which left him with some major scarring. Now, again, low-budget movie, probably a very, very shoestring. They do not show this. So the only way that you learn that he was attacked in this manner is through dialogue. Like, if you learn, if you, if you watch this with the sound off, you'd never know. And um, 
he's sitting at home with his new girlfriend and he sees that cop on TV and then he goes to find him. And he goes to this guy's house. He's got a wife at home. He's not home, but the wife is home. And he he gets into the house under the guise of a telephone repairman. So she lets him in and uh, she goes into the kitchen. She comes back out of the kitchen and uh, Charles unzips his pants. Now, you don't see what she sees, but you see the look on her face. She's like hypnotized by, by what she's seeing. So much so that she drops trow and they go at it right there. And then he, you just like cut to her in bed at night and he's next to her. And she kind of gets up in the middle of the night, walks over to the door and lets him in. And it's like she's still hypnotized from what she saw in his pants. And uh, he commands her to watch the children's room, to not let them out. And then Charles goes into this officer's bedroom. And you see kind of like a smash cutting between his face, really angry, and the cop being strangled. But it's it's cutting back and forth, very, very close-up shots. So we can only assume he's being strangled. And the cop dies. And then we go to the prosecutor. Now, early in the film, you see the prosecutor kind of like railroad this dude uh, during the trial. So we need we need revenge here. Same thing happens. He walks in. Wife is there. Unzips. Hypnotism. But this time we see what's strangling the prosecutor because Charles here drops his pants and we see his elongated prehensile penis. (laughs) It drops into frame and starts growing. To the point of it's at one point maybe 15 feet long. Yeah. <laughs> and it has a mind of its own as it wraps around this man's neck like a boa constrictor <laughs> and, then, and then strangles him. Now, up until about an hour and 20 minutes into this film, it is just like a normal movie. And then we get this. Uh, and it feels like it should be taken as a parody, but it also seems like it it's trying to be completely serious. I'm not sure exactly how to take it. Uh, it's bizarre. Friend of the show, uh, Jim Hemphill, who directed um, oh, uh, Trouble with the Truth. He wrote and directed Trouble with the Truth. He described this in an article that he wrote for Filmmaker Magazine as, quote, a blend of serious artistic intent and lurid exploitation showmanship. Fanaka uses these superficial trappings of the black exploitation movies that were filling theaters at the time to deliver multifaceted cultural commentary and structurally inventive storytelling to his underserved audience. End quote. If this sounds like something you'd want to see, like I think the tagline is all about that final scene. It's a good movie up until that point, but I tell you what, uh, it goes bizarre at that moment. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, it does. Oh, that's a great choice. That's I didn't even thought of that. Yeah, I, wow. Yeah, I I first saw that as Soul Vengeance a long time ago yeah. on VHS, and I I don't think I fully know knew I was getting in that having the black exploitation films. I think I just rented it because I recognized Fanaka's name from Penitentiaries. Penitentiary. Yeah, films. yeah, he did one, two, and three. Yep. Yeah. So so I I, I don't think I knew that was going to happen. and i'm glad there my mother wasn't there is all i can say yeah i rewatched that movie um for this episode and said to my wife jackie you want to watch this movie she's like uh sure i said well let me tell you about the description first (laughs) and she bowed out she did (laughs) yeah that's that's understandable that's understandable (laughs) 
Ah, that's a great choice. Great choice. Dan Budnick, we're to our grand finale here. Number one on your list of sheer audacity films. Okay, now this one is the one that I wrote the review about a long time ago that made me uh, come up with this title. And the, the premise of the movie is this. It's not a long movie. It's about 72, 73 minutes, which I stand by as being the best length for a film ever Hell yeah. but some disagree but i always think because you you go over an hour and then it's done right after that and i like that um and a lot of the tv movies from the 70s were that length without commercials um uh so the premise of this movie is uh four people are going camping um uh in they're somewhere in maryland and uh they all they they got a big camper uh, RV and it's it's two guys and um a brother half brother uh the wife of uh one of the brothers and the sister of the wife eh, it's fine so two men two ladies uh they get in the the camper van and they're they're going um deep into the woods in the middle of nowhere uh the camper breaks down and as they're fixing the camper uh the wife who has some psychic powers, um, is contacted by a, um, a Southern, uh, I think it's a Southern, Civil War soldier, the ghost of a soldier. And the ghost of the soldier asks, says to her that this was the site of a Civil War battle where the Northerners defeated the Southerners, and the their commander had his body, had his skull taken by the Northerners, and all the bodies of the Southerners were buried in a, in a grave site by a church, but the skull of the commander was buried somewhere else. And the commander can't rest until the skull is put with the rest of his body in the sacred ground. And the, the, the ghosts can't do it because they're ghosts. So the wife says, okay, she takes her husband, her sister, they dig up the skull, they bury it with the rest of the body, and the movie's over. And I know what you're thinking. That's like a 25-minute episode of something, Dan. That's not 72 minutes. And I, I I even tried to expand it a little by the way I described the characters. <laughs> kind of made this, um, I, could, I could have just said, like, four people in a van meet a ghost who asks them to move a skull from one spot to another, and they do. That's the movie. It's 1981, made in Baltimore. Um, made by people who worked on Don Dohler films, if you know the Dohler, Alien Factor, Fiend, um, Blood Massacre, Night Beast. Um, uh, it's a film called Night of Horror, which oversells it slightly, but, <laughs> and it's made by a man named Tony Malinowski, and uh, he wrote and co-wrote and directed it. And basically, the the premise is it's it's actually a, a slight variation on the on the Welcome Back, uh, Brother Charles sort of <coughs> pardon me thing, where uh, Tony Malinowski didn't want to go to film school, so he said, "I'm going to make a film," and this was his film school, and he got the he got this equipment, and he got people together, and they made this film, and the thing about the film is one, as you could tell from the plot line. There, there ain't a lot of plot. I mean, there's literally 20 to 25 minutes of plot that they stretch out to seven minutes. How do they do that? Oh, there's a five or six minute long sequence where you watch the camper go along the highway. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And then you think it's done. And then it goes on some more. There's a sequence where the Civil War soldiers are apparently telling everyone the story of the battle. And we get 
approximately seven to eight minutes of amateur Civil War footage. Fight, you know, like guys dressed up like Civil War, um, you know, Civil War reenactors. Basically, yeah. we, we get a seven or eight minutes of Civil War reenactment. Um, but because, um, you know, uh, they, they, they can't get in the middle of the reenactment. So we're always like some distance away from everything. So we literally, as a very repetitive song about a, one more dead soldier, I think that's, I forget what the name of the song is, but that, that's the chorus of one more soldier. How many gone? And it goes, the, the song goes on for like seven minutes and this footage goes on for seven minutes. And, and you, you sit there going, what, what? Where did the movie go? And the opening scene of the movie is the guy, the brother, talking to his friend, who's played by the director, and they are in a bar. Or it looks like a bar. It's actually a basement. And they're sitting in a bar in this basement. They're facing away from us, having a conversation. And so the scene goes on for six or seven minutes. And the sound is like this throughout. I don't know if you can hear me, but... Hey man, where have you been? We, uh, you know, well, what are you talking about, man? We, you weren't at the rehearsal yesterday. Well, I don't know. I, some strange things happened, and and there's also the lighting consists of they got like a one big light and they shone it at shone it shined it upon them, and you could almost always see the reflection of the light in a wall in a mirror at the end there's a scene where the one of the characters looks in the pool and you see a shot of the pool and you can see the reflection of the light right there and from the opening this opening scene at this bar goes on like this for forever to the civil war footage scene to the to the to the car driving there's a sequence where the the the, the wife is transcribing something and the brother the brother asks oh what are you transcribing oh it's it's a poem by poe oh Shall I read it to you? Okay. She spends the next two and a half minutes reading a uh, Edgar Allan Poe poem. And she just reads the poem, and occasionally it cuts to the guy looking at her. She's reading the poem. It cuts back to them. And that's that's the whole movie. When, you, when, when they go to get the skull, it's so dark that you have to strain to see what's happening. But then when you see what's happening, you think, why did I bother? It's three people walking through a field, and they dig up a skull. And then they walk the other way, and then they bury the skull. And you see everything that happens. And whenever, whenever there's, there's a dialogue scene, everything's always framed so strangely. And, um, everything's, I mean, it's, it, it really is one of those sort of glorious movies. I mean, to me, it's, and I say this with all the love of my heart, it's more incompetent than Manos is. Um, it's, it's just like, it's, it's, it's like you sit there and you watch it and every single thing that happens is just like, what, what is going on? And, and because at least in Manos, it, it feels like there's something happening. Even if you can't tell what the hell is going on, there's something happening in this. When you find out what the plot is, you think, really, it took us 55 minutes to get to dig up the skull and move it like 80 feet. I don't believe it. And it's just a movie where you were. Every minute is just a, a joy. Every minute is just you. You can't. And here's the thing: is from 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 what I know, Tony Manolowski made another movie a year later called Curse of the Screaming Dead, a similar film with Civil War 
zombies this time, and this time there's gore in it, so they eat people and tear them up and everything, so it's got a little more pizzazz. Oh, he must have bought the costumes and had to reuse them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, he, and, and, and in the end, his, his story that I've read an interview with him, and he was actually able, because they came out on video, to, like, move to Hollywood and get good jobs based on, hey, I have two movies I made, and people, he said, no one watched the movies. They just saw that I made movies and I had them on video, and so they hired <laughs> right. me. And, and and so and so, Night of Horror. That's awesome. I did, I did, um, uh, I did. So that's why I say I, I I say this with love because about four years ago I did a podcast called One Minute with Night of Horror, and I went through Night of Horror one minute at a time, and I discussed everything that happened in that minute. And so it's seventy one, seventy two, ten minute episodes, oh and I go gosh. through it very calmly. Very, and the thing is. I've rarely had so many people listen to one of my podcasts. So many people tuned in just to because they couldn't believe that nothing was happening minute after minute. I mean, I had I, I was working at that time. I was working doing accounting at a law firm, and several people there. I, I mentioned it to them, and I thought I'd never hear from it again. But like two months later, like they would come to me and say, "Is anything going to happen in that movie?" I just listened to the latest episode. What's what's when's something going to happen? And it's it literally is like if you take take Manos, take out the energy, and that's Night of Horror. And I absolutely love it. It puts me in a weird place that no other film can put me in because it's so individual. But it's also it's also something if you appreciate the craft of filmmaking, you're gonna get angry. It sounds like people would be better off just listening to your show about it instead of the movie itself. You could. I do include audio of each of the minutes in there, so you can hear the audio, and then I, I go through it um, sort of piece by piece, shot by shot. Um, but I, I mean, here's the thing, like I said, if you can get a chance to watch it, get comfortable, don't drive or anything while you're watching it, because you're going to fall asleep, and just, just get comfortable, and just, and you might you might catch the groove of it and you might fall into the space uh, and just be like, Hey, you know, I can tell that this is not well-made and it really wasn't meant to be well-made. It was people learning how to do it as they did it. First off, if this ever hits Blu-ray, cause this is not oh, on Blu-ray, I love right? it. No, no, it hasn't made it past a uh, video. If they ever bring this out on Blu-ray, number one, it's probably going to be somebody like Vinegar Syndrome that puts it out. Yes. Uh, so it's going to be amazing. And then number two, I'm sure that they'll have to get you to do the commentary for that. I one. would love to. I would love to. I think I'm, I think I may have mentioned that like when I was doing the podcast, I, and whenever I would do it, I would say something like, if anyone, you know, Vinegar Syndrome, Intervision, you know, if anyone, you know, Arrow, if you want to put out a Tony Malinowski box set, I can, I can do some commentary. Wow. That's a, a worthy number one, it sounds like, and one that I will try and seek out. Or, you know what, maybe I'll just say screw it and listen to the podcast instead. It's a good podcast. I thought it was a pretty good podcast, actually. It was, it was what I enjoyed doing. So, All right. Uh, well, my number one here is, well, I guess the, the year it was made kind of varies. And uh, I'll get into <laughs> that in a second here. But sometimes when physical media companies make deals with studios for distribution, they're just given like a pile of titles. Uh, for example, Kino just licensed something like 60 plus titles from Paramount. And I'm sure that some of those titles are ones that they really wanted that they can make a lot of money on. And then there's probably others that they couldn't care less about. But to get the good films, you got to take the bad films. And there's, uh, you know, I, I just mentioned Vinegar Syndrome. I love them. They're a film restoration company. And a few years ago, they acquired a bunch of films. And amongst those films 
there were some reels filled with uncut footage titled New York Ninja. Abductions of young women are still being reported. Another woman with mysterious radiation burns has been discovered. We're going to have a baby. Oh, my God. I can't believe that John's wife was murdered! You have to try and pull yourself together. This city owes me. Well, what's that? Justice. Why won't anyone do anything? We are strong on crime. And together, we have the power. This is a big city. We're doing what we can. Tell the others, I'm coming for them. I need you to help me. I would, but I want them dead. Crime has remained at an all-time low thanks to Ninja Fever. We're going live with this. These men murdered her because of what she saw. It's linked to these abductions. There's something weighing us down. It's that damn ninja. New York Ninja's a real hero. So um, the, the reels that they found were from 1984. But here's the thing about the reels that they found. Number one, the movie wasn't finished. It was literally just eight hours of footage. So all the takes, everything that they had. Now, um, there was also no audio. And there was no script. Some shots didn't even have slates at the beginning. So there was no correct order to a lot of it. It was just simply eight hours of footage preserved in these reels. And one of the Vinegar Syndrome employees, an editor named Curtis Spieler, checked the footage out one night and was like, we're sitting on a gold mine here <laughs> and had the sheer audacity to try and complete the film 35 <laughs> years later. Yeah. Again, no audio, all this just bizarre footage. So on nights and weekends, he sifted through the footage. They scanned it all digitally. He wrote a ton of notes and then went through and tried to construct a movie from the footage he had, writing dialogue around the way, crafting a story around it, and then hired these modern genre film actors like Don the Dragon Wilson, Linnea Quigley, Cynthia Rothrock, and people like that to dub the dialogue. And they didn't even try to lip sync the dialogue. They're like, you know what, it's going to be more charming to just mm -hmm. have the dialogue and not match up with the mouths. It's Absolutely amazing. Um, it took place in New York City, obviously, New York Ninja. And it's this just wonderful 80s time capsule of New York City. Uh, and it is so low budget. Like, according to the film's special effects artist, they had no resources. Different people just showed up on different days. They used what they had. It had an estimated special effects budget of $100. Most of it that went to one shot and um, it was just shelved because th there was a company called 21st Century Distribution, different than 21st Century Fox, that uh, originally had it. Like they put out uh, ads in trade magazines in 1984 that it was coming and then they just went bankrupt and they sold all their assets and it just never was picked up. The story, <laughs> the story is not really that important, but uh, it's about the sound technician for a news station played by the director, John Liu or the, the director in 1984, anyway, who becomes this ninja in New York after his pregnant wife is murdered. So he basically goes on this vengeance trail to try and get rid of all these gangs. 
But this movie is a blast. I watched it, I think, earlier. It was either like right around the holidays uh, of last year or like a little bit before that uh, with with my best friend. And we just had the best time. It pairs perfectly with things like Miami Connection and Samurai Cop. The original footage, like I said, um, great New York City time capsule. 1980s guerrilla filmmaking charm. You get so many great shots of the New York streets with these bystanders looking around like, what the hell is going on? There's a ninja here because they're not in on it. <laughs> they're just walking like shopping in Times Square. Insane costumes that they either got, number one, dirt cheap or number two, people just wore their own stuff to the shoot. It's best watched with a beer and a great friend because there's nothing quite like trying not to spill your beverage while laughing <laughs> because a ninja is roller skating through New York City, <laughs> jumping over cars, busting chalk eggs on people's heads. I've I so I do a lot of editing in my day job for both audio and video, and I have nothing but respect for Curtis Spieler and the job he did editing this back together because it does balance this really fine line between ridiculous comedy and these dramatic moments. And what you get is just this amazing passion project that, uh, you know, the story behind it is just as entertaining as the movie itself. So I had to put New York Ninja from Vinegar Syndrome at my number one from 1984 and from 2021. Just <laughs> such a fun movie. Oh, I need to see that immediately. Yeah, I don't know why I'm dragging. Yeah, you got to see it. After you after you watch it, let me know what you thought. <laughs> yeah, great choice. Mm. Now, I know, Dan, we got some honorable mentions. I'm sure there are a few that uh, didn't make your list that you wanted to shine some light on. I got a couple, too. So um, why don't you go ahead and run through some of those real quick? I'm just going to, yeah, just real quick. Um, Psyched by the 4D Witch, which is a late 60s, early 70s sort of softcore film that someone kind of went mental over and threw lots of psychedelic effects on top of everything, weird music, repeated um, images. And it, it basically feels like you're tripping when you watch it. It's an extremely weird film. Um, I was going to do this. This is this. I call this one soft, um, sheer audacity, Force 4. The Warhawk Tanzania uh, Kung Fu film, which is basically, um, it doesn't, it has a plot to it, but it's basically, it's about showcasing a bunch of black belts in New York City circa 1976. So they can't really act and they don't really hit each other too much when they're fighting, but the fighting looks pretty good and it just kind of goes out in a silly manner for a while. It's not a crazy one. Like I said, that's a softer sheer audacity. Um, I was going to say the film Irreversible. Which um, I won't go oh, into yeah. if you if yeah that that one, um, uh, yeah yeah um, two two films that I always put together: Curse the Headless Horseman from 1971 and Howling New Moon Rising from 1994. Um, they are both films that purport to be horror films, but are actually love letters to a certain group of people. So, Curse of the Headless Horseman is a producer, a writer who had this bunch of hippie friends who he just um, wanted to put in a movie. So he hired a guy who made Carnival of Blood to make the movie. And while sometimes they pretend like there's an actual movie with the Headless Horseman, most of the time they're just goofing around. And Howling 7 is a guy named Clive Turner who was in Howling 5 and Howling 4 ba making a love letter to the people of Barstow, um, which is um, in California in the, in the desert, and um, specifically a place called, um, a, a country western place called Harriet and Pappy's Pioneer Town Palace. So every time you think it's going to become a werewolf film, it stops and you get several minutes of line dancing. You get unfunny in-jokes between all the people who were mostly all people who were 
act actual non-actors who who were there and it becomes this really when you see it's it's it was made by new line and then you watch it and you go boy someone at new line must have got really pissed because he 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 never he never quite starts off the werewolf movie it's really weird and it's wonderful um and just a few more monster go go the famous Herschel Gordon Lewis film that Bill Rebane didn't finish and Herschel Gordon Lewis added an extra scene or two and edited the whole thing together and about halfway through the movie like the main actors change and they don't really mention it and it's weird and then the ending isn't an ending and it's really fascinatingly ridiculous. Uh, Jacques Tati's Playtime where uh, Jacques Tati built an entire New York, uh, New York, Paris block like a giant like eight nine story buildings in order to get exactly the shots and everything he wanted to make his film you'll have to see it to understand exactly what i'm saying but when you watch it it's incredible um the mummy and the curse of the jackal which was a film that was never finished but released on video anyways so when you watch it you sit there going what happened to this person What's going on here? Why did it end there? And then you learn later, oh, they never finished it. And then the last film I had was, oh, um, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, which is right after Birth of the Nation, when everyone called him a racist, he decided to make a film that was going to cover the history of humanity dealing with intolerance and trying to just rub it off the face of the earth. And damn near if he didn't almost succeed. So those are the uh, th- those are th- those are my, those are my honorables. All right, I got a couple here. Um, Grizzly Two is one oh, that I yeah. felt was a little <laughs> too similar to uh, Fearless Hyena Two, but uh, it was adver- it, So this was released in 2020 and was advertised as having George Clooney, Laura Dern, and Charlie Sheen in it. They were in it for the very first scene before they die because it was originally shot in like the early 80s and was never finished until. Uh, 2020 using like much like one of your other picks, uh, just regular National Geographic type of like bear stuff. <laughs> Jojo Rabbit was one that came to oh, mind. Yes, yeah. Like just based on the premise alone, making a hilarious Hitler be a little kid's imaginary friend. Yes. When I when I heard that plot description before I saw the movie, it was just like, well, are you kidding me? But that's a fantastic movie. It's a great movie. Alien Three. Because they kill two beloved characters from yes. from aliens with you don't even see it. It's just done through text on screen, which is just awful. Um, the I, I was going to put these shot for shot remakes on there, but I didn't want to spend time on them like the Lion King remake or the Psycho remake, even from Gus Van Sant split. Have you ever seen split? I haven't seen split yet. No, no. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but the sheer audacity of M Night Shyamalan uh, in the final scene of that, uh, the movie you find out is a sequel to another movie, and it does not tell you until the last five seconds of the movie, which is amazing. And one finally that I wanted to shed some light on is uh, one that literally just came out as we record this a couple of days ago: the new Disney movie Chippendale Rescue Rangers. <laughs> have you have you heard of this or seen it yet? I, I, I've heard I've heard about it. I haven't seen it yet though. As a old TV fan, I think you're going to love it. It is so insane what Disney let them do with the characters of Chip and Dale. And um, it's right now, it's one of the best films I've seen all year. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I'm, gonna, I'm on it. Uh, wow. It's really, really good. Dan Budnick, obviously your new book, the, the description or the rather the, the link is going to be in the show notes here. So people Thank can you. 
buy this and check this out. Why don't you tell people what it's about and then where to find your other stuff? Oh yeah, um, the the new book. Yeah, like like you mentioned uh, some time ago. Um, before our journey began, um, fr- what the hell is the name of the book? From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, <laughs> uh, exploring TV's Henningverse, nineteen sixty two to nineteen seventy one. Um, my favorite American sitcom is Green Acres. Um, uh, not not only uh, can it be very sweet at times, but it's also very surreal, and it's also hey, very funny. Um, and um, Paul Henning produced that. Another man, Jay Summers, created that. But Paul Henning, um, earlier in the six, well, let me let me back up. Beverly Hillbillies came first in 1962. Was huge. Paul Henning created that. 1963, Petticoat Junction. Paul Henning created that. Also huge. 1965. And basically, what happened is the network said to Paul Henning, "You got another show." And he said, "Okay, I'll go make a pilot." They said, "You don't have to make a pilot. You got a full season. Do whatever you want." So he made Petticoat Junction, and then. Um, Two years later, they came to him again and said, same thing. Don't need a pilot. Do whatever you want. And he said, well, I'm writing like he was he was like a David E. Kelly kind of guy. He wrote every episode, wrote or co-wrote every episode of Hillbillies, almost every episode. Um, And so he gave this other producer who had worked on Petticoat Junction um, free reign to make whatever he wanted. And he made Green Acres. And the great thing about them is that Petticoat Junction is set in a small town called Hooterville, right on the outskirts of town where the train comes in. It's set in a a small hotel. A woman, her three young daughters, and their lazy Uncle Joe run the hotel. Um, Green Acres takes... uh, Hooterville's a farming community. Green Acres takes place on a farm in the community, the same community. So the characters of Petticoat Junction and Green Acres interact quite often. So there'll be an episode. So at the end of the first episode of Green Acres, Oliver and Lisa, the main character, try to go into their new house, but it's a wreck. They can't get in, more or less. So they go and and stay at the hotel. So Green Acres episode ends with them at the house. Lisa doesn't want to go in because it looks so horrible. Credits roll. The next day or two, you watch Petticoat Junction. There's an opening scene where Oliver and Lisa show up and say, we'd like to get a hotel room. And then the next episode of Green Acres begins with them going back to the house and saying, we've been at the hotel for three days now. We have to go in the house. So there's a continuity between those two shows. And then eventually the characters from Beverly Hillbillies come to Hooterville. And so all three shows become part of a, um, a big universe as it were a shared universe. Now there were times in green acres where characters talk about watching Beverly Hillbillies on TV. And there's an episode of green acres where the local um, where, they, where they put on a charity show where they perform an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. So they talk about uh, calling Paul Henning and getting a script from him and, and dressing up like the characters. But then later on, they all meet and they all have Thanksgiving together. And so it's these three shows. And this this didn't happen back then. These three shows are all part of the same universe. Yeah. And when I realized this, I suddenly thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a book where I went through one episode at a time in broadcast order and just review this review the episodes gave a little plot breakdown what happens with the characters here um and because it's 62 to 71 there's so much socially that was going on in the world too can mention when when hippies show up when they talk about protests vietnam all, all sorts of different things like that you can kind of socially go through it but you can also explain this created universe being um created and it's really and it's really a lot of fun I spent forever writing the book, and I can still sit down and flip through it and enjoy bits of it, um, which is always nice when you write a book. And it's it's so the book is six hundred and sixty six reviews 
from 1962 <laughs> to 1971, and they're in broadcast order. So when you get to like season five, which is 65 to 66, you get like a Hillbillies review, a Junction review, and Acres, a Hillbilly Junction, Acres, you know. And, and so there's variety as you go through, and things kind of build. And Beverly Hillbillies was very serialized. Um, too. So you get, you get all the stories going through there. So it's just, it's just an era of pop culture that I've always loved. And I finally got a chance, um, to, to write a book about it. And a publisher was very kind enough to, to publish it. And, uh, it's, uh, it's hefty. It's like 763 pages. So it's not, um, it's not a small book. Um, but, but so far, generally the reviews are good apart from, forgive me, um, old baby boomers who watched the show when it was originally came out and want to know why someone from generation X is writing about one of their shows. And that actually has happened on several occasions, which I found really weird. Um, but, um, um, but apart from that, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. I think it is. Um, now granted, you may have to know a thing or two about the shows. It's very niche. Hell, sure. That happens. That happens. So, 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 so that is that. You go go on Amazon, pick that up. Um, the Kindle, the Kindle version, you can get for nothing on Kindle Unlimited. But I would suggest spending a couple bucks on it because writers can be nice people and like money sometimes. You know, not that I'm greedy. Yeah, you but, got support. Uh, <laughs> yes, and so and so, I, I have that book. I also have a Kindle Kids book called Arthur Bertrand and Constance. It's a book about a little girl whose parents are about to get divorced and she's moved to a new town and she doesn't have any friends and she's lonely. And one dark night, her pillowcase and bedsheet come to life and they go on adventures. And um, then I had a, uh, the Bleeding Skull book, the site I wrote for Bleeding Skull in 1980s Trash Horror Odyssey. That unfortunately is out of print, not my fault, but it's out of print. Um, but if you hunt for it, you can find it. It's a fun book with a lot of rare weird 80s movies in it. And then my other book is 80s Action Movies on the Cheap, which is still in print and which is about 284 reviews of low-budget um, uh, 1980s action movies. So we sort of begin, there's no Stallone, there's no Schwarzenegger, there's no Norris. Um, we, begin, we begin with um, uh, Dudikoff and Rothrock nice. and, and go <laughs> from there. So, so And Red Brown. You know, folks like that. So, so those are the those are the books. And yeah, made for TV mayhem shows the podcast. Uh, one of them, I, I think you, you guys would really like. Adventure Super Train, the short lived TV show. And I do a, a podcast called Rockin' All Week with You, a Happy Days podcast, where I go two episodes a time uh, at time through the seventies, eighties, fifties sitcom Happy Days, and I'm on season six of that. And then the last thing I'm doing is I, I do minute by minute. Um, podcast. I mentioned Night of Horror, and that's where you go through one minute at a time through movies. And I'm doing three of them right now. Three double features. I don't know why. Uh, I, I hadn't meant to. Um, when I started doing <laughs> them, I said, all right, everyone, I'm going to do five of these. Tell me which one you prefer. And everyone's comments were, they're great. And I said, no, no, I need you to be more specific. Love them. No, could you just give me one? Keep doing them. I just, could you just one? I don't want to do all three. So right now I'm around 38 episodes into 70s Friends of Frankenstein, which covers the Italian Frankenstein 80 and Blackenstein. And uh, a spooky minute spent in a ghost house, which covers the two uh, mid 80s um, uh, haunted house movies, Spookies and Ghost House. And then the last one is Howling 2 and 7-2, which covers Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, and the aforementioned Howling New Moon Rising. And that 
that's about it at the moment. I did come up with another book idea recently, but I won't go into it. All right. Oh, actually, I've started a new. I, I have started a new book, um, but I just started it recently, so I'm only about a hundred pages in. So early days there. So. So you're going to have all the links to all these things in the show notes. Tell me, by the way, that that somebody at some point, one of those boomers that wrote the bad review for you, started it with the sheer audacity. <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I, almost the wording was almost <laughs> that, and I was just like, "Oh, come on!" All right, let's run those picks back one more time. Dan's picks from five to one. We had at number five, "The Magic Land of Mother Goose" from 1967. At number four, the Hungarian film Satan Tango from 1994. At number three, kind of a twofer with The Devil Monster from 1946 and Doris Wishman's A Night to Dismember. At number two, we had The Falls from 1980 and his number one pick was Night of Horror. And for me, I had uh, at number five, Soul Man from 1986. At number four, the horrendously cut together Fearless Hyena 2. At number three, United 93. At number two, the bizarre Welcome Home Brother Charles. And at number one, the amazingly entertaining New York Ninja. What would you consider a sheer audacity film? Let me and Dan know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram or on the uh, Cinematics Facebook page and your comment might just make it to the next show. If you like what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It really, really helps me out and tell your friends to listen with us. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, go listen to me on podcasts like it's 1999 and Film Shake, and watch some movies that just make you think the sheer audacity. (laughs) 